Vida Mundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. So here is God's response to Israel's repentance. Him, the people of Israel seeking out repentance and, and trying to come back to God, realizing that they've made a mistake in their lives, that they've gone astray, that they've done evil things, and now they're coming back to God. And we get to read this beautiful response by God telling his people that his anger has turned, that his love has turned, or his love has torn towards them, and now he is blessing them with many blessings, especially from a God of love. Now, remember, if it, we went through the first three verses understanding that the people of God needed to repent, and some of them had already done it, but it was only at a superficial level, and so they could never genuinely repent until God intervened and made repentance possible. So that's why I want to go with you, uh, go, uh, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. I want to show you something in the book of Deuteronomy, which bounces off what we read earlier in 1 Kings. But I want to make sure that you guys get this, because here was God calling his people back throughout the book of Hosea, and this is why. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, we read in verses 25, when you father children and children and your children's children and have grown old in the land, if you, if you act corruptly by making a carved image, has Israel made a carved image in Hosea? Yes, they have. In the form of anything and by doing what is evil, has Israel done evil in the book of Hosea? Yes, they have. In the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger... Has Israel provoked God to anger? Yes, they have. Most of these questions are going to be a positive yes, so just answer confidently. If I, in verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Has Israel been destroyed? Yes. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Has Israel been scattered? Yes. There you go. I like that confidence. And you, will, and you will be left few in number among the nations. Are they few in number? Yes. Among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone. Again, have they served gods of wood and stone? Yes. The work of human hands, remember that, the work of their human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. In chapter 14, are they finally seeking God with all their heart and with all their soul? Yes. Verse 30, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Now that's one aspect 
that Moses had already kind of seen beforehand that even though they do all these evil things, even though they provoke God to anger, they still have the opportunity to come back to God if they do so with all of their heart. Now, I'm going to just lay in a little bit on this because I want you to really understand this. This was God's opening the door for for Israel this entire time. Moses sees this again in, in chapter 30. Go with me to chapter 30. And and the passage that I would want to read is verse 1 through 10, but I'm going to just focus on verse 3. In chapter 30, verse 3, it says, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So there it is, this promise of restoration to God's people. God will restore his people. God would heal his people and then restore them. And that is why repentance is so beautiful. It isn't just to admit your own faults. Repentance isn't just to point the finger at you and make you look bad. Repentance is to ultimately bring you restoration and healing. As a sinner that we are, we come to God because we need him to heal us. That's why in in Hosea chapter 5 verse 4 and chapter 7 verse 2, their evil deeds would not allow them to repent. And in chapter 11, verse 5, they actually refused to be healed and restored by God. And that's why God first had to come in and remove that which made him angry in order for him to heal. That's why in verse 4, it says, I will heal their apostasy. The object of God's healing is their apostasy. Once again, what is apostasy? Their wayward ways, their constant rebellion against God. And if you think about it in your sense, is there a constant road or avenue of constant apostasy that you have towards God? Continuously walking away and in rebellion against God. And in order for you to come back to God, God first has to heal that in your heart. We've, we've encountered many couples in, in, in marriage and in church where either one or the other, they're dragging their husband or they're dragging their wife to church. And their wife or husband just, they don't want to be here. They're just like, yeah, this thing for me, I don't want to wake up early on Sunday, and I don't like the way that guy talks. So I, I don't like being here, and I don't want to be here. And there's a constant battle with that. And it isn't until God heals the apostasy within the heart of the person that they come to God. And believe it or not, friends, if, this, if, if you're in, the, in those shoes, I've seen, I've seen men fall that were completely devoted to drinking and going to clubs and going into into prostitution in many cases, come to the feet of God. And their wives are like, wow, this, this was a miracle. And it's genuinely a miracle. Why? Because God first has to heal their apostasy. You can't drag them kicking and screaming to church if, if, if they don't want to. And they're going to be here upset. Until God removes their apostasy. This is the important aspect of Israel. If Israel was still involved and and didn't want to turn from idols as they didn't in their previous chapters, they would never have turned to God. But it isn't until God completely destroys them, leaves them as orphans, 
that they realize, you know what, God is God Almighty, and, I, and we should come back to God. God has removed that from them and now brings healing towards their apostasy, which is forgiveness. You always have to remember, we don't have to go there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, God is the one that wounds and he is also the one that heals. So in God wounding his people, he ultimately brings them to restoration. So it is an inner healing as well as an outer healing. But the important thing is God heals. And then from here, since we mentioned that or last week, we spent some time on, God, on God's healing aspect. From here on, this is the important part. From here on, after God has healed, after God has restored the relationship, after God has allowed the people to come back to him, after God has given to the people freedom from their sin, then, what does verse 4 say? I will love them freely. So prior to this, Israel was, in, in fact, the object of God's anger. That's the common question that is asked in our millennial age where does God love the sinner or does God love the sinner and hate the sin or, does, or, or what does God love or what does God hate? Well, in, in the Bible, it's very clear. God hates the sinner, and he destroys the sinner. And you can be like, oh, man, that, that's, I, don't, I don't believe in that. That's, well, that's what the Bible says. But in that, he brings them to restoration. That's why you and I are here. You and I are sinners who have been brought by grace into the arms of a loving God. And it isn't that when we come to God, we're perfect people. None of us here can make that claim of perfection. But we still are sinners, but the difference is that we've recognized our sin. I, as well as you, have this constant opportunity to say, yeah, I am a sinner. I, I do fail God. But I know who to turn to when I do. I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect until God comes and finally does that final restoration in our lives. But this is now, we, as well as Israel, have now become the object of God's free Love. Can you imagine being loved by the God Almighty? That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to experience. That's what we're here to worship. I'm loved by God, even when there's nothing good to love in me. That's what keeps us humble. That's why the worshiper comes to the worship service like this. Humbled. Bowing down, that's why all these attitudes and motions of worship have to do with like acts of surrender, kneeling, praying, lifting up our hands and, and bowing our heads because we've understood one thing. We do not belong in the presence of God Almighty, yet we're here because God has loved. Because he loves, we're able to express gratitude and we're able to worship God because he has loved us. And in this love, he has brought us to a restoration where Israel, in this case, was separate from God because they were receiving his anger. But now they are restored to God and God can now love them freely. The rebellious nature of Israel has finally lifted and they are now reconciled to God. But the beautiful thing about this is 
God says, I will love them freely. So the immediate understanding of this is that the source of their healing and the source of their love comes not from within themselves, but from God. That's what you always have to realize. In, in the Bible, the source of everything is God. In the beginnings from Genesis chapter 1, everything was done by God. And you look at it in the New Testament, John chapter 1, everything was done by God, through God, for God. In Colossians chapter 2, by God, for God, through God. And our lives are held together by God's continuous act of love and restoration. Ultimately reconciling his, himself to us. And this is part of God's love. But there was a sense of judgment that needed to be executed in order for God's love to be elevated. That's where people often mistake God for, for either being all loving or all wrath and all anger. And there's like this dichotomy where people have separated these two different gods. And it seems like sometimes God are two, is two different people. But we cannot forget, and what Hosea has taught us for 14 chapters, if you've been here since chapter 1, you've understood one thing. Justice needs to be made. That's the ultimate, one of the ultimate messages of Hosea is that justice needs to be made. What does justice mean? Well, in our modern context, picture this. Adolf Hitler, one of the worst criminals in our, in our current memory that we have from the 40s. Uh, we've heard about him. We read about him. We went to school and we studied the Nazi party and, and, and the Reich, the Third Reich. And, and, and this was Adolf Hitler. He's a bad man. He kills many people. He sends them to concentration camps. And, and many Jews suffered under Adolf Hitler. So what does justice mean? Well, Adolf Hitler had to face judgment had to face justice. And although there's skept, uh, speculation if he killed himself or he hid or he, he took off, if they caught him, he would be serving justice. Because someone like that needs to face judgment. It doesn't matter if God would have forgiven him or didn't, he would have to face the consequences of his decisions. And that's very true in even our own case. And you're going to be like, well, how are, you, how are you comparing me to Adolf Hitler, man? I'm bad, but I ain't that bad. I mean, come on, bro, you got to slow down a little bit. Well, we're all sinners before God. That's the, that's the brutal fact. We're all sinners before God. However, we have this wonderful opportunity to come to God because of his grace. But the problem is, if we continue in our sin, and we saw this through all the chapters in Hosea, they continuously dived into their sin, and they made it worse. And if we remember, I believe it was chapter 7, where in, that they became worse sinners than their previous generations. It was a constant battle between God's people and God, where God was calling them to repentance, and they didn't repent. And they knew the words of Moses that we read in Deuteronomy. They knew it, and yet they still didn't repent. So what ended up happening? Judgment came across. God was just being just before them, and they had to answer to their sin. But ultimately, God loved and brought them 
to him, even if there was a small group of people that came because God freely loved and he was freely uh, giving to them mercy and being faithful to his promise. So this, these people were not wiped away because God completely loved them. He gave them hope beyond captivity, and this future hope would sustain them for future generations. This loving freely concept is an overabundance of love. So picture love that has no end. There is no end to this love that God had for his people. And if you translate that to, your, to yourself, there is no end that God has to love you, even though you don't deserve it, even though I don't deserve it. God's love shows him more powerful to those who are unlovable, unworthy of finding favor with God, but he freely, freely loves those who are unworthy. Israel provoked God's wrath, yet God promised to love them. This is, this boggles my, every time I go through Hosea, I try to go through it at least once a, a week so I can have it fresh in my, in my memory when, when I'm preaching. But you, you remember all the times that Israel was not supposed to be loved, constantly fighting against God, and yet God was still promising to love them? How do you love somebody when you know they're going to fail you? Well, when you step up at the altar and you get married, unless you're expecting perfection from your future husband or from your future wife, you understand one thing, they're going to get me upset. But till death do us part. We stand at the altar till death do us part because even though they're going to get me upset, I'll still love them. However, that doesn't ring true in many modern cases. Marriage is at an all-time, I mean, divorce is at an all-time high. So people step up to the altar and say, till death do us part. But, oh, you know what? You've been driving me nuts for the past five years. I give up. You have no hope. I'm out. Pack up my bags, and I leave. Yet God, in his abounding free love, knowing 100% sure that his people were going to fail him once and twice and three times and four times, he still to love them. That blows the mind of the, of the finite person to understand how do you love somebody so much that even though we fail, even though they fail, you can still love? That's our God. That's who we worship. That's who we honor. That's who we give ourselves to because he loved us freely. And we get to benefit from that beautiful love. There's nothing more beautiful than seeing that love reciprocated even with a marriage. Even when someone fails in marriage, you can still love because you can still forgive. And that's exactly what God is teaching us, not only on, on, the, uh, on the Israel aspect, but at the grand scale. God loves because he forgives. Forgiveness is ultimately key for restoration. That's why God healed their apostasy, and in healing them, he was showing love because while he's healing them, he's forgiving them. Forgiveness is key 
for any relationship, it's key with God's relationship with his, cre- with his creation. Because God loves, he demonstrates forgiveness. We've understood this concept of marriage since chapter 1 and 2 and 3, where Hosea and his wife were just two distinct people doing two different things, and Hosea's wife, Gomer, was constantly cheating and moving away from her love to her husband. But somehow, we're getting to that point where Hosea is going to end up loving her again and forgiving her. And that's no coincidence, we haven't touched chapter 3 yet, because after chapter 14, we're going to turn back to chapter 3 so that we could understand and the finality of this relationship. But we have to understand that in chapter 14, God loves because he heals, and because he's healing, he's forgiving, and he's showing us the way of a proper relationship. The way we're going to be together with God is because he has forgiven us. Friends, we have to realize that we need forgiveness from God. And only he can provide, provide that through his healing. And the beautiful aspect of this verse is in that forgiveness. And because he has healed and loved, what does it say at the end of verse 4? My anger has turned from them. We spoke a little bit about that last week. But I just want to make this final case here. This verb is the same verb that we read in in verse 1, return Israel. God is turning from his anger. And the tense that is used here is the perfect tense, which means the, the decision and the action has been completed. His anger has turned. It doesn't say for a little while. It doesn't say for uh, just maybe a couple of months. It says that the anger that God had for his people has ultimately been done with. He has turned from it. That's what the perfect tense implies. He has turned from it, and because his anger has turned, now the only thing left to give is love and forgiveness. He is not angry anymore. Friends, if God was angry with us today, Constantly coming to church, feeling God's anger would kind of be a, a gloomy, kind of like the day is today. It's gloomy. It's not, it's not fun. Constantly coming to a place knowing that God just hates us. Like, man, why, why even come to church? But the fact is God is no longer hating us. And, and the fact that we can say that knowing who we are. Knowing how we stand before God. Think about it. Think about all the things that you think about in your brain. Your wife doesn't know what you think about. Your husband doesn't know what you think about. Think about all the things that you say about other people that don't come out. Think about your feelings that you have towards certain things or certain people in life. Think about all that stuff that no one else knows about. The famous phrase, all those skeletons in your closet that no one else knows about, but only you, and you realize God isn't angry with you, even though those things exist. All the evil thoughts that you have, all the constant sin that you have in your brain or in your thoughts or in in the way you act or or even physically when you're hiding from from something evil that you're doing and knowing that, that, that you're doing wrong, but realizing that that 
wrong can be made right by God. God isn't angry. His justice is very real. So even though you're doing that sin and you're a son of God, you will suffer the consequences to that sin. But God isn't angry. He's angry with those who do not repent. But for those who are here who have repented, he loves freely. And that's what Israel is feeling at this precise moment. Think about it. They've been receiving the edge of the sword constantly by God. They have been destroyed. They have been exiled from their home. They have been scattered throughout all Judea. They're, they're all over the place. They have no temple. They have no home. They have nothing to turn to. They have no national identity. They've been receiving the hard edge of the sword constantly being broken down by God because of their wayward ways and because of their apostasy, but it's finally healed. It has no longer a hold on them. That's what we have to be thankful for, that we have been healed from our apostasy. What does that mean? That we're not chained up to our sin anymore. We don't have a chain around our sin that cannot be broken. That chain has been broken, and therefore we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness and to God because his anger has turned and he has given us love freely. He's not angry anymore. Now the response from verse 5 and on is beautiful because God doesn't only reply with healing and doesn't only reply with love and, and turning away his anger, but now he replies. This is God speaking back to his people, having this dialogue with his people that he started in verse 4, but now he makes it clear what this love will do. Turn with me to verse 5. And although you may not understand the agricultural implications here, I'll, I'll try to go with them with you as we read. He says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the wine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So those two verses, five, I mean three verses, five, six, and seven, explain God's response. Israel has repented. They've asked for forgiveness. Father, we have failed you. We have sinned before you. And God says, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to love you. And my anger has turned completely from you. And because my anger has turned completely from you, this is what I'm going to do for you. He says, I will be like the dew to Israel. What does the dew mean? What does this imply? Well, dew is that misty, I don't know if you've seen on a, like a rainy Sunday morning, you see that the, that the grass is kind of wet and there's kind of like sparkles at the edge of the grass. Well, this dew is very real and it's very important for Israel because it provides growth to all the crops. It's the only way that the fruit of the crops will grow. And what God is saying to Israel is saying, he's, he's putting himself there. He's saying, I'm going to cause your growth. You have been destroyed. You have been in complete disaster. But now I'm going to supply 
growth to you. By healing you, I'm going to supply you with a prosperous growth. I'm going to give you what you need to prosper in life. This do is an aspect promoting a new type of life, a life of abundance. Not necessarily prosperity, but a life of growth in God. He's promoting a new life. Can you imagine being a new person, a new life, having a fresh start over with God? All your sins have been wiped away. All those terrible things in your past have been completely set aside. God no longer remembers them. And what God is doing now is giving you a new life. Beautiful. That's what the New Testament talks about. That's what regeneration is. That's what being born again is. We're going to go through that when we go through the book of John. But this is the beauty of it. God says, I'm going to do it. God doesn't say, all right, well, now that I've wiped away your sins, now you have to be a good boy. Now you have to be a good girl. So try your best, honey. No, God says, I'm going to help you do it. The source of new life is going to be found in me. I will be like the dew to them. Friends, allow God to do his job in your life. Don't depend on your own strength. That's why sometimes you may feel like, oh, I'm going to do right. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to do it. And you utterly fail because it's not up to you. God has to do the work. It's interesting that God describes himself as the do, as a life giver and a life promoter. But if you recall in chapter 13, what was he? In chapter 13, he was the lion, the leopard, and the bear. And what did all those animal figures mean? It destroyed life. God said to Israel in chapter 13, I will be the lion, I will be like the leopard, and I will be like the bare mother that has been robbed of her cubs. That was a ferocious sign that God had. But now he's saying, well, I'm not like that anymore because his anger has been removed. Now I'm like the dew which gives you life and gives you growth. This dew will make Israel bloom. Look at what it says in, in, in verse 5. He shall blossom like the lily. Will sprout new life being nourished by Yahweh. I don't know how good you are at planting, planting uh, flowers in your home or outside, but it's an awesome experience when you see what you've planted kind of sprout out color. If you've planted tulips, tulips, or whatever it is that you that you do at, at home, and you're just like, wow, that's beautiful. I, I, I planted this, and now look at we get this nice lawn with with yellow flowers and purple flowers whatever they are I have no idea what their names but but it looks nice and then the little kids from after school come and they run all over it and you get very upset however that life experience of seeing something planted and sprouting out because of why because of God's do because of God's nourishment that makes these flowers bloom and they sprout out new life, and they look beautiful. What, what God is doing in this, in this verse is this kind of poetry that's it's a little bit daunting in the fact, in saying that Israel will be beautiful before God. Now think about it. This whole time, we've had this metaphor of marriage. 
I mean, it started off that way in, in, in verses, in chapters 1 through 3, and, and we're, every once in a while, we get hints back to that marriage concept. But here God is saying, Israel will be beautiful again. Now, if you take the marriage concept the way we've learned it through Hosea, Hosea and his wife Gomer, again, Gomer was cheating on her husband, was sleeping around with multiple men. It wasn't just one guy. She did it constantly. She was doing it over and over again. She was just being completely in the hands of other men for a long time. We, we realized that it was a long time because we saw that in chapters uh, 2 and 4, her sons were grown. So she wasn't doing this for a year or two. She was possibly doing this for 10 to, 14, 10 to 15 years. So can you imagine this? This concept of a woman who is a harlot or a prostitute. Her body has been given up to men for, for almost 15 years. The look we would have for someone like that in our present day would be a look of disgust. Like, man, you've given yourself to all these people. You've done all these evil things. Look at your body. Look at the disease that you have over your body. That diseased body was exactly the way Israel looked before God. Because they constantly fell into the same sin. But that's why these beautiful verses come out. Because where there is new life, there is a new look. And this life that God provides makes Israel look Beautiful like the lily. She's beautiful now. This marriage concept, can you imagine Hosea grabbing his wife and instead of looking at her with like, oh, now he sees her as a beautiful flower again. That's the God that we have. And whenever we, we, we want to avoid God or, or stop coming to church, remember that God loved you and saw you as beautiful even though your sinful life made you disgusting. God saw you beautiful. And that's what God wants to do with you today. He wants to make you bloom. He wants to give you life. That's why we read across the whole Bible, choose life, my friends. Choose life. Because in this new life, you bloom like the flowers, you bloom like the lilies, and you demonstrate a new beauty because it is a beauty that has been given to you by God, not by the makeup that you wear or the haircuts you get. It goes further. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. This root concept is very beautiful because the trees of Lebanon are very tall trees. If 
You ask yourself, like, what's the deal with the trees of Lebanon? What's, what's up with that? Well, the trees of Lebanon were famous trees in, in, in the ancient times, and it was what even King Solomon did use to build his, his, te- his temple. These Lebanon trees were high, lifted up, were, were very tall trees, so that if the, the higher the tree, the, the, the longer the roots had to to spread in the ground. So what is God saying? You will not only grow beautifully, but you will be stable. You're not going to be unstable anymore. Your roots are firm into the ground. You, in this new life, you are durable and you have strength in Yahweh. So God doesn't only make you beautiful, he makes you strong. Durable. Durability is important because in a new life in Christ, Things do not get easier. Things are not easier. Things are, don't get just, uh, it's not like a coast in the wind anymore. Things get more difficult. Your family may reject you. Your family might make fun of you for coming to church, at a Christian church, and be like, you're betraying our religion. But you are durable now before God. God's giving you root, and you can stand firm to any attack from the enemy, from any attack of your parents, of your family members, from any attacks. You are now durable before God, and Israel will feel that and, and know what that, un, what that means. When, when they're compared to the trees of Lebanon, they understand. Wow, God is doing that in our lives. God's making them strong and durable. And giving them this new strength in Christ. I, I want to read, you don't have to come here, but in, in Psalm chapter 92, I just want you to read this. I mean, I want you to hear this. 92 verse 13. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Flourishment. Being planted in the house of God. This reflects their deep roots. Ultimately, in verse 6, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. There's Lebanon again. What does this imply by the shoots? Well, the shoots, if you, if you, I don't know much about trees and agriculture, but I had to look this up a bit. The shoots are sometimes the stumps. So when you cut down a tree, you have like this little stump. My favorite book as a kid was The Giving Tree. How many of you guys have read that, the, the book, The Giving Tree? It, it has pictures, so you don't have to read a lot. Um, and, and, um, and give it to your kids. It's a beautiful book. My father gave that book to me a long time ago, and I, I've given it to my kids, and I've read it with them. But anyway, the, 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 the whole book at the end, they, it gets cut down all the way to the stump. So, so, so that's what the shoot means. And, and, and why would God compare them to a shoot? Well, the shoot means abundance of new lives, of new life. That's why it says his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And he explains not the fruit, but the olive tree is what is implied here. And we know that because the olive tree, when it gets cut down, and the mountain of olives in, in Jesus' time, and every time we see the olive tree, it's this majestic tree. It's a very important tree in Israel. But this olive tree, when it gets cut down, new trees grow in its place. From its shoot, from, the, from, its, uh, from its branches, this comes out this new life. So God, what, what's going on here? God has cut down Israel. 
has left them like a stump. But now what God is saying, your shoots, your branches, new life will grow from them and they will spread. God has cut them down, but in cutting them down, they will grow new life and they will grow more fruitful. If you want to know more importantly why this is important here, because the prophet Isaiah prophesied in chapter 11, verse 1, that the Messiah would come from the stump of Jesse. The stump meaning the shoot. God is giving new life, and in giving new life, God will bring new life through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, from the stump. So though, you, so though Israel may look like a stump at that very moment, God's going to give them new life, and they're going to grow. His, his, verse 6 says, their shoots shall spread out. And once again, that beauty, his beauty shall be like the olive, and he will give off fragrance like Lebanon. That fragrance was smelled all the way in Israel, and that's why Lebanon was so famous. It was smelled. You can smell the beauty and the fragrance from it. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my wings. Where will they dwell? In, his, in the shadow of his wings. Once again, where will they dwell? Underneath his shadow. What does that mean? So not only are they growing, not only are they beautiful, where are they going to live? Where are they going to be? They're going to be underneath God's shadow, underneath his protection. And not only God provi pro provides protection underneath his shadow, but he provides goodness. They can live freely underneath God's shadow. They have everything that needs to be provided to their life. The shadow of God is, very, is a very important uh, metaphor because it, it, it talks about protection and provision. Underneath God's shadow is where you want to be. Underneath God's shadow is where Israel wants to be because they've been in the desert what, what's the best thing that you can get in Chicago when it's 92 degrees outside and you're walking in, uh, in the, during the Chicago taste and, and you're going uh, through all that whole block and it's 92 degrees outside on a hot July summer day and you're walking, you want to go underneath a tent and drink some Gatorade. You want to get away from the heat. You want to get away from, from, from the sun. You want to be able to relax a little bit and then keep walking because it's hot. When you're living a life excommunicated in the desert, what's the best thing that you're going to get? God's saying, I will be your shadow. And in this shadow, you will be able to grow and prosper. And not only that, you will be protected. Why is that important? Because they've been assassinated by Assyria. They've been utterly destroyed. They will dwell underneath his shadow. New life, new people, a life now of future hope in God's salvation. Friends, go underneath the shadow of God. Be under the shadow of God. Do not dwell in your sin because in your sin you're in the desert underneath God's fiery sun. Be under the shadow. So that you can turn to God and grow and be provided. 
The last verse, and we did it, friends. We got to the last verse that I wanted to today. The last verse is a dialogue. It's an interesting dialogue that's going on here. So if, if your Bible has it laid out in four lines, the first line and the third line is Israel speaking. The second and the fourth line is God speaking. So it's a little bit confusing the way our English translations set it up. But the first line says, Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? That's Israel speaking. They've realized that they have nothing to go to, no one else to go to, no other idols to worship. The second line is God. It is I who answer and look after you. That's God saying again, even though you've gone through idol worship, I'm looking out after you and going for you. Line three, Israel is saying, I am like an evergreen cypress. Why is Israel saying that? Because now they've been planted. Now they've been giving new life. And then God says, but don't forget in the last line, from me comes your fruit. So at the end of the day, I'm your provider for everything. And that, my friends, is what God does to his people. So you may be saying, like, man, this is all about Israel, Hosea, Gomer, all these old people, ancient times. No, no, no. This has to do with you. This has to get you to understand God at the core that he is your ultimate source of provision. Don't seek your provision in anything else. Don't go to anyone else for your security. Don't go to anybody else to feel the best type of love. You will only find it in God. Everyone else and everything else will ultimately fail you. But God is faithful and fruitful and he will stay with you until the end, even though you fail him. But God loves you. That's why I feel confident this morning to say, God loves you. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to say that in church because then people think like, oh, well, cool, I'm cool, yeah. I could still live the same way and do the same thing in life. And, and God loves me anyways. I'm cool. I could still be drinking. I could still be shooting up. I could still be uh, flirting around with a lot of girls. No, God doesn't love that. And if you stay like that, God doesn't love you. But if you repent from your ways and turn to God, as he has turned to you, I can say, God loves you, man. God loves you, young lady. God loves you, young man. And he wants you to live underneath his shadow. So let's stand up and pray. Pray with me this morning. Father, we, we are grateful for what you've done by turning your anger away from us. It has been done. Now, Father, we ask for that strength, direction, and understanding in how to live the way you want us to live. You're our ultimate source of life. You're the one that's going to provide everything for us. You're going to walk us through, but Lord, we need your strength. We're all human beings here, and we fall very short of bringing you contentment. Well, help us. Guide us. Lord, even though we will not be perfect people, we have a perfect God. 
We are not perfect people, but we have a, a God that loves perfectly. And so, Father, we come to you this morning, and we put our, our lives in your hands the rest of this week, knowing that we can walk faithfully in you because you have given us the strength to do so. The way you've done it with Israel, the way you've been doing it with, in our lives, you are doing it today, Father, in many of the people's lives here. Make us flourish and blossom like the lily so that we can spread your fragrance all around us. Put this church, this congregation in your hands. In Jesus' name. We all say amen. Give God a round of applause this morning.